Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Hello and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week we bring you an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. This week we're talking with Adam Estes. He's a professor of music at the University of Mississippi. He teaches uh, saxophone, woodwinds, and does a lot of stuff in, in addition to being a professor, he's also a performing musician. We're going to be talking a lot about that today. Adam, welcome. We're so glad to have you back. Thank you so much, Larry. Good to be here. So you and I talked up in Oxford. We're doing this remotely today. We talked back in 2019. Just went and looked back. It's been four years, and it sounds like it's been a busy one for you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, it's a great to chat with you again. You know, we were hosting that big NASA conference back in 2019 with all those you know, uh, international and national guests. And it was a successful event. And we really appreciate uh, what MPB did. And in, in this this particular, you know, Arts Hour was able to help spread the word. You're a professor of music at the University of Mississippi in Oxford. You, you're a saxophonist. You're, you're a bassoonist. You're an interesting guy in that you kind of have a multiple tools in the uh, tool bo- in the musical toolbox, primarily a saxophone, but you've got a lot of other ones as well. That's correct. Yes, my, uh, my experience in, in music, my career has taken, you know, a variety of turns along the way. When I was an undergraduate student, uh, the doors were open to me uh, for multiple woodwinds through participation in jazz ensembles where as a saxophonist, I learned uh, flute and clarinet and, and had to actually to be a member of that. And then also picked up bassoon there because, as most places, uh, there's always a surplus of saxophonists running around. And the band director presented an opportunity for me to learn the bassoon for extra scholarship money and and to, you know, sort of broaden my skill set as a, as a woodwind performer. And so before I knew it, I had experience uh, four of the five woodwind instruments, not the oboe, at that point in my life. And, and that helped kind of direct me to the path that I chose, where I went to graduate school and really honed in on the saxophone, bassoon, and clarinet. And I always tell people who ask me about, you know, what can I do to diversify my skill set as a woodwind performer? And I think multiple woodwinds is a is a safe uh, journey. It's a safe path and, and one that's very rewarding. And actually, it's because of that that I was able to get, you know, work in the in the band director field in Texas as a middle school band director. And it certainly uh, helped me get my jobs in, in, in higher education as well. Because not everybody, not every band director has, I mean, they have their primary instrument, but they they, they take classes on how to teach these other instruments, but sometimes their playing experience can be fairly narrow. You can easily, more easily work with, I guess, a bigger section of a, a larger ensemble. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the bigger band programs out there tend to have a brass specialist, a woodwind specialist, a percussion specialist. 
And even though, you know, they may be a trumpeter first and foremost, it's expected that they're going to have a level of proficiency on the rest of the brass instruments, much like a woodwind specialist should be able to do the same for the woodwind students and so forth. If you're at a smaller band program, that's not uh, always the case, and you have to wear many hats. And I think it's it's really important as educators to be able to model, you know, characteristic sounds on all these instruments for those beginning students and to, you know, really take those courses seriously as they're going through their music education curriculum to have really good resources and to work on being able themselves to create those characteristic sounds to model for those kids is, is really vital. So now you came up in the high school band world in, in small town Texas, right? Yes, that's correct. So t- talk about kind of the importance of that band director in terms of being uh, in your life, you know, kind of being that person that, um, you know, steered you as a, as a musician, as a performer, and then eventually as an educator. Absolutely. You know, I, I was fortunate to grow up in a small town, you know, that actually encouraged you to do a variety of things. And first and foremost, I've always been a jock who played every sport under the sun, and I still do. But I also was really drawn to music. Uh, my father had an old saxophone laying around from his time as a student uh, in the public schools. I thought it looked like a pretty cool instrument, and it made sense since we already had the instrument that I should try that. Uh, the role of the band director was uh, vital to me. I had just such an influential uh, mentor. Uh, the gentleman's name is Corey Ash, and, and he was an outstanding uh, mentor and teacher to young students. Always encouraged me uh, when I was presented with, you know, a really hectic athletic schedule. He was always willing to work with me and to encourage me to do the best I could and be involved in as much as I could. And and he was there to ensure that it was all going to be all right. And, you know, he was he was always encouraging to do the extra things that I was interested in, which included learning solos for solo and ensemble festivals and and to do that. And he took hours uh, out of his personal time to help uh, coach me on that. And even as a brass person himself, he was a really gifted, uh, a skilled and thoughtful musician and teacher and was able to really, I think, point me in the, in the right direction uh, to where I I achieved success for me, uh, being able to play that music and have a really great experience. And then, you know, when when he saw potential leadership in me, he encouraged me to audition to be one of the drum majors in the marching band. And actually, that was a pretty vital moment for me as a young student um, because I was I was trying to, you know, figure out what was next for me uh, in college, what field I was going to pursue and so forth. And being a a drum major and learning how to conduct and understanding, you know, what what that looked like and what that meant and how that impacted me as a musician was really important to my development. You're listening to the Arts Hour on MPB. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Adam Estes. He's a professor of music at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, and he's also one of the founding members of the Assembly Quartet, Saxophone Quartet, and we're going to be talking about them and their new release uh, in the next segment. So, Adam, when you, your band director had such a big influence on you, you kind of then later went into into high school band directing yourself for a while as well, right? Yes. Uh, it didn't, that part of my career didn't last very long, even though it seemed like such a, a seminal time in my career. Um, I, let's see, I finished my doctoral degree 
in 2008. And then two years later, I was working in Texas as a middle school band director, but I was hired at the conclusion of one year of that work in North Dakota for a tenure track, uh, multiple woodwinds job at Minot State University. How was it on the with the shoot? You know, you saw your your mentor growing up and thinking, you know, looking up to him. How was it on the other side of the uh, of the of the uh, this, the musical stand there? <laughs> it was incredibly challenging. Uh, yeah. In, in, in ways that I could never have imagined initially. The way I like to relay it to my, my current students who are on this track is that, you know, those younger kids, uh, when, you're, when you're new in that role, I think it's like a rite of passage for them to figure out what buttons they can push to set you off. Like that's part of their, 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 uh, their goal. And gradually, you know, they learn to like you or they just do that on their own and then gradually – you really start to embrace them as people too, not just as students. And then, and I think in a small town, in small programs where you have a chance as a music teacher to spend maybe seven years with those kids as they're going through their formative years as, as people, but also as musicians is really rewarding as a teacher and, and very purposeful work, but uh, also very sad to see them, to, uh, see them leave when it's time for graduation. I guess a lot of your students are similar to you in that they're probably coming out from when you were a student as an undergrad and that, you know, because of Mississippi being a rural, primarily a rural state, you probably have a lot of small town band kids who are coming and, you know, uh, trying to do that thing as well. Do you see kind of that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, it's probably more the exception that people who are so involved in athletics are also in band in Mississippi and other places. But for me, that was an important part. But I think for people who don't have other outlets or creative activities outside or extracurricular activities outside of sports, that band plays such an important role in their life because it gives them that camaraderie, that sense of, you know, quote unquote, team uh, building, you know, where, you know, you're, you're, you're representing something far greater than just yourself you know, people who don't have that from sports, you know, certainly get that from bands. So I think that's a really important uh, developmental part of, of young people's lives. The last time we were talking, you, you know, you talked about that, that element of, you know, at the university, you're considered like a performance-based, remind me the, the, the term. The, yeah, I think it's, performance uh, it's performance scholar. faculty. You performance know, faculty, thank you. Yeah, where it's equal parts uh, educator. You know, the lion's share of the students that I'm working with here at the University of Mississippi are music education majors who are undergraduate students, though I do have some undergraduate performance students and then master's in performance students. So, you know, we're training future band directors mostly, you know, is the students that I get to work with. But equal to that in my role here for the university is to be an ambassador for the University of, uh, university of Mississippi as I go out and travel and perform and engage in master classes at other institutions and perform in chamber music, concert series as a soloist, you know, with orchestras and th- things like that. You know, it sort of acts as, uh, you know, its own branding. And, and I'm just out there spreading the brand and, and my association with the university, the university's association with me and the saxophone studio and the music department as a whole. It all contributes to that same end uh, end goal. Just like the, the, the football team is out recruiting, you're out putting yourself out there in front of potential students to show like this is somebody you can come study with. 
Yeah, and that's a vital part of the role that I have within the university. In fact, last week I visited the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, University of Kentucky in Lexington, and then Tennessee Tech University in Cookville, Tennessee, all with those goals in mind was to share my research and creative activity through performance, but also at each location I taught master classes to the saxophone studio, engaged with the students, and, and I'm looking to recruit potential graduate students from those programs right. to come here. You know, you were on tour last week, but it's a, you know, it's a school week. So yes. because of this role, they allow you that flexibility, I guess. Yeah, it's not just allow, it's expected too. you know. Expected, but okay, yeah. Yeah, it's expected that we're out and engaging in these ways for the reasons that I just mentioned about, you know, furthering the brand and, and being active in the field. But people want to come to places that have, you know, substantial and reputable programs. I think that that comes from student success, of course, first and foremost, but it also comes from, you know, faculty being uh, really good at what they do and being active in the field. So it's through publications, it's through these types of engagements that that association is established. Uh, and then, you know, the results come after that. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. What is Chalkboard Chat? It's an MPB education podcast. It's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers, students, parents, guardians, and everyday people on various topics. It's learning something new with every publication. Chalkboard Chat. Find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today my guest is Adam Estes. He's a professor of music at the University of Mississippi, and he's a founding member of the Assembly Quartet, which is a saxophone quartet. Adam, talk about, now saxophones kind of make a perfect quartet in that they have the four main saxophones, you know, you have four main saxophones, so it kind of fits together pretty naturally. Yes, Absolutely. The saxophone quartet, I think if you're looking for a good, you know, something to compare it to with strings, it's uh, the equivalent of a string quartet where you have two violins, a viola and cello for saxophones. We have, you know, a soprano voice, alto voice, tenor voice, and baritone or bass voice. So we have the soprano saxophone, alto saxophone, tenor saxophone, and baritone saxophone. It's a nice homogenous sounding ensemble that, you know, covers a nice sound spectrum from high to low and everything in between. Do saxophone quartets go back historically, or is it more is it more of a contemporary grouping? No, they do, in fact, go back. Uh, you know, it's, it's still an incredibly young instrument when compared to others. 
It's uh, one of the only invented instruments that we have out there dating back to the 1840s. Music was written, you know, for the development of its uh, repertoire, you know, shortly after after that, Adolf Sachs worked hard to, you know, get his buddies like Berlioz and Paul Agricole Janine and Jules de Mersemann and people of that time to write original music for this instrument. But it took a little bit of time for it to say, oh, we should do saxophone quartets. There is... The first saxophone quartet is by Jean-Baptiste Sangelet, and that dates from uh, 1860s. And, and so it, it dates back to that time. And then this ensemble as a genre, the saxophone quartet, you know, certainly has repertoire dating back to that time and all up to contemporary times. It really took off with, you know, if you, if you think back into like the 1940s and 50s with the guy who was teaching at the Paris Conservatory at the time, his name is Marcel Mule. He was, you know, the premier saxophonist uh, performer as, as well as teacher in the area. He had a quartet of professionals and former students of his that he played with, and they generated a lot of music with uh, commissioning composers that wrote for that particular ensemble. And so a lot of the, the quote-unquote standard repertoire that exists for saxophone quartet is large, uh, largely thanks to Marcel Mule and that quartet. But there's composers today that are, I mean, and they're composers writing for, for your quartet specifically, correct? Absolutely. And, you know, really, really from the mid-20th century, it, it just kept growing and going and going. It gradually became not so much of a, an exception or a peripheral type of experience, but it became something that, that was more commonly established at, at, in schools and in communities and now everywhere you look, you know, I, in, in my studio, for example, we have three saxophone quartets, student groups. Every music school out there, every saxophone studio out there, uh, there is a, a bunch of saxophone quartets going around. So everywhere you look, there's this genre and there's this attraction to participate in that from the students. And I think it's because... Music is so much fun to make with your friends, and if you have four of them, there's nobody playing the part that you're playing, so you get this this uh, joy of being a soloist, but without right. the pressures of being on your own, right? You're there with three others, and, and you actually grow so much because this is a non-conducted ensemble. There's nobody leading it, you know, with the yeah. baton in front of the group. You know, you have to you know, be individual and you have to be part of a team and you have to make really interesting music decisions here and there and constantly be listening, evaluating and adjusting what you're doing uh, on the fly. So now the assembly quartet, am, am I right? Is this your, tw- are you nearing your 20th or? This is our 20th season. 20th? Yes. Yeah. 20th anniversary. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And this has the has origins back to your graduate school days, correct? Correct. Yeah, I'm I'm the founding member of the quartet here, the only original member that remains. Two of the other members, Ian Jeffress, the alto player in the quartet, he joined the group I think in 2006. Uh, Matthew Younglove, our tenor player, joined in 2008, and he's been here since then. We hired a new soprano saxophonist, Jeffrey Heisler in 2014. And he's the only one that doesn't have direct uh, ties to the University of South Carolina, but the other three of us do. So you guys are all, everybody's uh, in academia and you're all kind of spread across the country. So how does this work in, <laughs> in terms of like getting together, rehearsing, performing? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Larry. I think we we spend so much time together as musicians earlier in our career that, you know, we we know a lot about each other and and the way we approach music. So we spend probably between six and eight weeks together a year, depending on our various uh, schedule. So we may have, you know, in the fall, two weeks of uh, residencies or performance engagements. You know, we may have three weeks in the spring and then we'll We'll be in the recording studio and teach in a summer camp or something like that in the summers. So we're, we're constantly working on whenever we get together, we rehearse a lot, not just for the gigs, for what we're doing right then, but for the next things too. So it, it takes a lot of pre-planning. It takes a lot of individual preparation on everybody's part so that when we get together, we can be really economic with our time. And you guys do performances as just as a chamber ensemble, but also as part of like like a guest performance with with a symphony. I'm just curious. I know like in the in the pop and rock worlds you have a booking agent that goes out and finds you gigs. How does that work in the saxophone quartet world? Well, it it varies from group to group, of course, but we are our own management at this point and you know, it may get to the point soon when when we need to employ a manager because it takes a lot of time to do logistical planning and and reaching out to potential places that are booking and so forth and and just negotiating contracts, et cetera. But uh, presently, we do that. Some other groups actually have management that takes care of all that, which relieves a burden, but it also eats into the financial gains for an ensemble if you go that route. So, you know, at this point, everything we're making, we're really putting back into the quartet for creative projects moving forward. And, and that's been kind of our model at this point. Well, tell us about the new project. This is a new a CD. Is it your? Is it the third CD? Fourth yes. CD? Yes, it's our third one as a okay. quartet, and this is on the Amp Recordings label. And we are thrilled with this. This has been, you know, just a creative joy to work on. And this particular project, uh, this album is titled Remix, and it features reimagined works for what we call the saxophone quartet plus genre which means the saxophone quartet plus other instruments. And in this case, we feature three works. Jerusalem Mix, which you heard a little bit earlier by Avner Dorman, is a quintet for saxophone quartet and piano. This was reimagined from its previous version, which was for piano wintet. And I actually was exposed to this piece in live performance in Oxford, Mississippi in 2018. A wonderful group from Germany came in called Ensemble 4.1. But at the Ford Center, they performed a really compelling program, which included Dorman's Jerusalem Mix. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, I, I was really, it's an engaging piece to listen to. It's energetic, it's rhythmic, it's dissonant, it dances, it sings. It has, you know, all, all sorts of really interesting, you know, Jewish traditions. There's the kind of klezmery type play. There's Middle Eastern Jewish traditions coming through and different aspects of the music throughout all of the movements. And I thought it was really compelling. So immediately I contacted the quartet mates and I think and I said, I think I found our next new project here. So I immediately ordered the score. We contacted the composer about this and he's like, yes, go for it. Make an arrangement and share it with me and we'll see what we can do. So Avner Dorman was very excited about that and, and endorsed this. So the album features this wonderful work, uh, Jerusalem Mix, but we called it Remix because it's a reimagination of this wonderful work. The second piece, uh, keeping with the theme of Remix, is 
by Alfred Schnitke, his wonderful quintet, originally for string quartet and piano. We reimagined for saxophone quartet plus piano. And this work is also really compelling. Schnitke's music is often highly dissonant and and uh, follows some pretty dense, uh, you know, harmonic sounds that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But And it's, it's a deeply personal piece to the composer. He actually wrote this as a memoriam to his mother who passed away. And I think what shows uh, a composer's struggles with the piece is that it took him about seven years to complete this work. He was trying to make it just right, just the right piece for a memoriam for his mother. So it, it has five movements that are all kind of played without pause. And it's everything from kind of a music box memory that you hear in this wonderful reflective ending to... Uh, you know, a heartbeat that's done with the piano pedal only at the end of one movement to unbelievably unnerving microtonal playing, which I think represents Hello? the the grief that Hello? he was experiencing. Tell me about the, so you have, and there's a third composer as well yes. with, the, with one piece at the end of the CD. Yes. So the the last selection on on this album is a piece titled Original Blend by Bill Ryan, also a re- reimagined work. This is a really a piece that's based on groove, unevennesses, and as the composer says, a bunch of surprises. It was originally written for violin, bass, clarinet, and drum set. And Jeff Heisler from our group uh, arranged this with the composer's permission uh, to do it for saxophone quartet plus drum set and piano. And it's incredibly rhythmic and groovy and fun. And it just builds to this climactic ending, which is, is quite impactful. So these three pieces comprise our remix album. And we're incredibly proud of the arrangements that have been done by Jeffrey Heisler on this album and also the product uh, that we've put together with the quartet and then our wonderful collaborators, Ichin Ye on piano and Colin Hill on drum set. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for our final segment on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Adam Estes. He's a professor of music at the University of Mississippi and one of the founding members of the Assembly Quartet. We're talking about their new CD, and we just heard uh, a track from it. So you had mentioned, and we can hear in the in the examples that we've played, that you've added on some guest performers to play with you on these on this recording. So to talk about that process, about bring other performers into the mix. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, part of it was because we we have such dear friends that we want to collaborate with. So we were trying to imagine what are some projects that we could do that would, you know, involve each and yay on piano. 
who is also Jeff Heisler's life partner and spouse, and and much of us uh, from the quartet play with her soloistically as well. So it seemed like a really good opportunity to, to collaborate with her. But more than anything, you know, we're looking for music uh, to perform projects that engage us and that you know, that we're attracted to. So whatever that may be, you know, like uh, I was talking about the Dorman, hearing that live, it didn't matter what that instrumentation was. I was so attracted to that music that I wanted just to play it on whatever I could. The same with the Schnitka and with Bill Ryan. Those projects emerged uh, through, I think, the recommendation of Jeff Heisler in our group and and were, were great and they seemed like they fit really well. So part of it is is just the music and creative projects that you're interested in. Another part of it is the people that you want to collaborate with and to spend time with rehearsing, performing, recording, touring. And then maybe the last thing is, you know, you choose to do repertoire and performances in, in the field of music, and that's its own type of branding. And we want to choose music to perform and share with audiences that is reflective upon our, our creative energies and, and ideas. And so this also kind of helps us stand up a little bit apart of some of the other quartets, I think, that are out there in the field today that we're doing and uh, in, in sort of pioneering the saxophone quartet plus genre, which maybe will get some legs and, and go forward into that kind of territory as maybe a new genre. And so kind of getting back to the, you know, you're all in different places. I'm just curious about the mechanics of this, of this record. So this was recorded, a studio recording, not a lot, not a concert recording. Correct. This is, this was done in the studio, wonderful sound engineer, by the name of Mark Bunce, who's a partner in Amp Recordings. And we did this at Stone Soup Recording Studios in uh, Maumee, Ohio. And unlike uh, maybe like a lot of pop music that is recorded piece by piece, this is like you're in a studio, but you're doing a performance that is, you know, you're all playing together. It's being recorded at the same time kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and in fact, I find that it's kind of the reverse of the way a lot of popular music probably does its projects. Uh, one thing that you know I notice when I'm watching documentaries and so forth of popular musicians is that they'll show up to a studio and they'll be sort of charged with with writing an album in the studio. So they're creating new music and then they're recording it and then they tour that music, which is kind of crazy to me as a as a concert music performer and recording artist is that we generally, you know, spend a lot of time on this music beforehand. We will perform it and tour it maybe sometimes for years. And then, you know, once it's nice and marinated and, and we have kind of a, a comfort, a level of comfort and, and experience with it, it's then that we record that. So that's not necessarily the way it has to be done. That's just my experience with it. Yeah, but you've kind of worked out all the, the rough spots and figured out exactly how you're going to do it. So exactly. how long was how long were, were these were these pieces in your repertoire for a while before you recorded them? Somewhat, yeah. Uh, five years maximum. I think the first piece uh, we premiered from this album, we premiered the Schnitka Quintet in 2018. We premiered the Dorman Arrangement of Remix in 2021. It was actually our first performance uh, during the pandemic. It was our first live event that we had, It was, which, you know, really is emblazoned in my memory. And then uh, the Bill Ryan, we also premiered in 2018, that version. So you, this, the CD is coming out. Of course, you're doing this. How, how does, in the, in the concert hall world, how do, you, how do you get the word out? How do you push this, 
this recording out there to the to the broader saxophone world? Yeah, that's a great question and one that we, you know, talk a lot about as a quartet. And I think a lot has to do with, you know, publishing little snippets and advertising and doing PR things uh, via social media. But it's also like on this uh, tour this past week, even though the quartet wasn't involved uh, as a full complemented group, we were really pubbing this and talking about the repertoire and sharing information about that. So through my our each of our various engagements, we're, we're all doing that. But the main way to get a bunch of concert saxophonists interested in this music is to present it at meetings of like the North American Saxophone Alliance or the International Navy Band Symposium in D.C. And so we've been doing that and we will continue to do that in the coming years. And then you do you perform as a soloist and with other Mississippi based groups as well? Yes, you know, mostly as uh, as a hired musician for orchestras around, you know, I'll play some with the Jackson, Tennessee Orchestra, the North Mississippi Symphony Orchestra in Tupelo, I'll sub uh, with the Memphis Symphony Orchestra as well. And then there's uh, something that's called the Memphis Chamber Orchestra, which does a lot of uh, just hired out performances. It could be at churches. It could be at other schools in Mississippi and Tennessee. I play quite a bit with them, too. And, uh, yeah, stay busy with a variety of bassoon and saxophone work locally and regionally, too. You're listening to the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Adam Estes. He is a professor of music at the University of Mississippi in Oxford. He's a saxophonist and multi-instrumentalist in the in the woodwinds category. And his longtime group, the Assembly Quartet, has a brand new CD out that we've been playing and talking about today. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit here while we have a little bit of time left about kind of kind of encouraging people who may have an interest in, you know, I'm I'm thinking about adults, not not college kids or students, but, you know, people who are working adults who maybe always had a a desire to learn music or maybe they took music lessons for a while, but they just feel like they can't. Somehow it's just too hard. And the one thing, and I know talking with you, you've, you've had an aptitude for reading music, you know, since your childhood. And a thing I hear a lot from people is like, oh, I can't read music. You know, it's just, you know, it's just like this foreign language. There's just no way I can do it. And I'm wondering how you, as a big reader of music and and teacher, how do you counter, how do you kind of turn that perspective on its head a little bit? That's that's such a great question. You know, I think empowering somebody and giving them confidence to just explore and to discover with an instrument is what it's all about, you know? So, those who are listening who are maybe considering, you know, dusting off the old guitar or flute that their sister played years ago or something. I right. think, you know, it's just about exploring and making sounds uh, for me. You know, not that these are the, the same scenarios, but, you know, if I, I think back to being exposed to the, the first performance of the Dorman that I heard in the Ford Center, I was so moved by hearing that music live that I had to do it. And so I just figured out ways to make that work, you know. So I presented it to our quartet, and then we, you know, it was arranged for us by Jeff Heisler, and then voila, we have it. Now, if I'm listening to something on the radio and I want to engage with that, you know, I think it's it's worth uh, exploring by just taking your instrument out and trying to play what you hear. You know, that's that does yeah. really great things for what they call aural development, A-U-R-A-L, you know, just, just training your ears. You know, it's it's basic uh, call and response kind of 
uh, of a model where you're listening to something and trying to create it or, or just plunk it out on the piano or whatever. And, and I think if you're, if you're drawn to some, to something and you find solutions to just engage with it, with an instrument, I think that's where the joy is. The joy is in the discovery and in the journey of that. And who knows, maybe that's going to spur you to want to, to acquire some more techniques to do something that maybe you couldn't quite represent with your version of what you heard on the radio. And then you, you seek out somebody who's maybe a, a little bit more experienced on that instrument to help as a teacher or something like that. Another concept that I saw that you, you highlight on your individual performer website is the concept of active listening that you talk with your students about. And in kind of thinking about kind of the, the adult avocational person who's like wants to engage more with music, talk a little bit about that concept of active listening and how it can help them, you know, maybe go towards some more active participating in music. That's uh, a wonderful point. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> I must say, first and foremost, it's a blessing and a curse to be a musician when you're listening to music. And you might feel the same way that if I'm listening to something, it's hard for me to turn off my analytical ear often. But rather, you know, I'm listening for it and and then I'm trying to break things down and so forth. So one of the things that I just love to listen to because it just washes over me is to put on like an ambient station, you know, listen to some of Max Richter or something, some composers like that that has just this, this long beautiful unfolding music that that I don't really feel like I have to analyze, but that soothes my soul. Active listening, as I see it, is about understanding who is writing this music and where does it come from? When was it written? I think having a context of understanding of who wrote it, when it was written, who it was written for, where was it premiered? Like what were the environments when this music was imagined and created and first performed? I think that can help transport you uh, to a different place. And then after understanding that, it's to dig into more music by that particular uh, songwriter or composer, like get familiar with their works, you know, listen to multiple albums of that, you know, listen to symphonic works if you're if you're studying a solo piece or or vice versa, just to see how they approach, you know, different types of of music for different uh, different ensembles or different performers. And then it's about, you know, taking the next steps to understanding what what is going on, the nuts and the bolts of the music. You know, this is where maybe if you're a hobbyist, you could take like a music appreciation textbook and read a little bit about that or, you know, go on YouTube and, and, and start to understand what what meter is, what tempo is, what a pitch is, what these instruments look like and sound like. And then and then you start to listen. You have visual aids, you have aural aids, so that when you listen to something, you can pick these things out. And then you start understanding about form and how something was written and how it unfolds. You know, why does this stuff come back? I, I've heard it before. It's repeated. Why is that the case? And then maybe that rabbit hole takes you down this path of, of what Sonata Allegro form is if you're listening to a symphony or something like that. I think, you know, if you have a curiosity about it. There are resources out there and you should just do your homework a little bit on exploring who who the composer is, the time that it was written, and, you know, what is the performance practice of this music? You know, if it's a, you know, singer-songwriter down at, at some little dive bar, you know, I would try to capture who else is playing there, you know, what types of acts are brought in and then and maybe get a hold of their CDs and, and try to, you know, listen to all that to see what their what the, the kind of vibe is for that kind of music. And then just do do as much listening and exploring of somebody's music as you can to really get an understanding. 
so that you're not really just judging the book by its cover, but you're getting a full comprehensive understanding of a particular artist or composer. Adam, before we head out, I um, wanted to make sure you are active performer. What performances, other workshops or things that you've got coming up maybe through the end of the year that you'd want people to know about? Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. Locally here in Oxford, we have on October 12th, which is a Thursday night at Nutt Auditorium, the saxophone studio recital. These are the students at the University of Mississippi. We have student quartets going to be performing, as well as the studio saxophone ensemble is going to be performing, which kind of goes hand in hand with what we were talking about, the development of the, uh, the saxophone quartet in our discussion today. Also, I'm doing... John Williams' Escapades, which is a concerto based on the music from Catch Me If You Can, that that wonderful movie with Leonardo DiCaprio back years ago. I'm playing that oh, yeah. with the LOU Orchestra at the Ford Center on Monday, October 30th at 7.30 p.m. And it's also going to feature local percussionist uh, David Carlisle and bassist Greg Johnson. Great. And then Excellent. finally, uh, I guess before the end of the year, there's one performance I'm doing with the great Stacy Rogers on piano. This is going to be an Advent concert, which is a Wednesday noon hour at First Presbyterian Oxford on December 13th for a short program of music. And that will likely include Barry saxophone and piano. Okay, excellent. Well, those are all great uh, opportunities for people to come out and hear you. And if people want to know more about the Assembly Quartet, where should they go? They should go to assemblyquartet.com. All one word, assemblyquartet.com. Excellent. Adam, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Larry, really appreciate the time and being able to discuss this with you. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can... Please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. <laughs>